Hey guys, welcome to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. My name is Brian. And my name is Maggie. And we interview Asian entrepreneurs around the world to amplify their voices and empower Asians to pursue their dreams and goals. We believe that each person has a message and a unique story from their entrepreneurial journey that they can share with all of us. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. Today, we have a very special guest with us. His name is Hiroki Koga. Hiroki is the co-founder and CEO of Oishi. He has made it his mission to bring the finest Japanese strawberries to the U.S. consumer market and founded Oishi, the company behind the world's largest indoor vertical strawberry farm and the omakase berry. In 2016, while he was pursuing his MBA at the University of California, Berkeley. With Hiroki's leadership and knowledge of ancient Japanese farming techniques, Oishi is the only player in the industry to produce pollinated fruit using AI and machine learning technologies at a commercial scale, considered the most sophisticated crops to grow indoors because of long cultivation cycles, while using zero pesticides to produce perfectly ripe, delicious strawberries year-round for consumers. Hiroki, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me today. I'm really excited. Yeah, we're super excited to have you on. We read so many articles about you. Congratulations to being featured in Forbes. Thank you. Amazing accomplishment and congratulations on your series A, you know, 50 million. It's a lot for series A. So congratulations on that. Yes, it is a relatively large round, but I know considering our business, um, which requires a lot of investment and, in, in, you know, capital because we need to build factories. So, um, yeah, right. it's a pretty big round. Let's kind of hop it right into it and hear more about your story. Like, where'd you grow up? What was your upbringing like? What was your fascination with strawberries? Sure, sure. Um, not sure where you want me to start, but um, so I'm originally from Japan. Um, not like I think most of the people who are featured on this podcast, um, I'm actually very new to this country. So I came here about five, six years ago. And prior to that, I pretty much spent all my life in Japan. So um, I was born in Tokyo um, and raised as the only child um, in my family. And so my father was a, a public servant. My mom was a housewife. So, you know, we were a, a very typical middle-class um, family in Tokyo. And unlike, I think, a lot of the um, other typical Asian parents, my parents were really chill. And so they, you know, never really forced me to um, you know, study or never forced me to go to a certain university or try to influence me to become a doctor or, or a lawyer. So, you know, I grew up very freely and um, they, they always told me that I was the captain of my life and that, you know, I could do whatever I wanted to do with my life. So, um, you know, it really gave me the freedom to think of different options. And, you know, back then I didn't really know what that meant, but, you know, in retrospect, you know, especially, now that I'm 30, 34, um, I think especially after I graduated college, this value really helped me make important decisions um, later in my life. And, um, you know, I, it really helped me to kind of start this company as well. Wow, that's amazing. Um, I love that your parents had told you that you're the captain of your life. It's it's definitely a different perspective uh, compared to a lot of other Asian parents where they, you know, force them to become lawyers or doctors. So I love that they're kind of give you, giving you the freedom to, you know, use your imagination and build whatever you wanted. Yeah, I think 
you know, the, the other thing they, they really emphasized um, was that um, there are, there's always things that is more important than money. So they really emphasized that, you know, I should try to find something that is really true to my passion. And, you know, as long as I have a happy job and I have, you know, a, a happy family life, you know, that's, that, that's, that's really good enough. And, and so, um, you know, that, that kind of freed me from all of the monetary, you know, con, you know, when people say risks, mm-hmm. you know, it's always tied to money. Right. So when I started this company, a lot of my friends were saying, well, that's really risky. But, you know, when you think about what risk really is, they're always tied to money and people are implying about the money that's, you know, attached to it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, because of, you know, how, how I was raised, it, it really kind of let me think without uh, being worried about that. And that really helped me um, pursue my, my my business here in New York as well. Uh, I really like that perspective a lot. And that's really a common theme that we have among other entrepreneurs on this podcast is that a lot of people go into business not really thinking about the money. They think they're thinking more of their legacy, their impact, and how they positively affect the world. And you have that heuristic as everyone else in the podcast too. We really like that, you know? And it's about making a difference, about taking that risk and knowing that you have really nothing to lose because once you learn a concept of money, money can always be made back, you know? <laughs> but you can't have that time back to, to do that part again. Exactly. And I, and I think it was, it didn't really resonate to me as a kid because we weren't particularly rich. And, you know, I was only allowed to buy one Nintendo 64 cassettes every year. <laughs> I was like, why can't I buy more? Right. But, um, you know, I think I also learned it um, kind of through my own experience being a consultant. So that was my first job right after college. And, you know, I, I did make not, you know, crazy amount of money, but enough money to buy whatever I wanted. But, you know, after doing that for a few years, I quickly came to realize that, you know, even though my salary was going up every year, the amount of money I was spending was really not changing. And so that's kind of like when I first realized that, you know, maybe I should really start looking into what my passion is and and really spend the rest of my life building something that I really care about. I love that. And let's quickly talk about your passion. You know, let's talk about how you got into strawberries. Sure, sure. Um, The importance of the strawberry while you were growing up, too, because I've had strawberries in Japan and they are absolutely delicious and something you can rarely find in the United States. And I know that, you know, it it means a lot to you when you eat a strawberry on a special day. So talk a little bit about that as well. Sure. So, um, you know, before I talk, you know, about strawberries, I want to talk a little bit about why I ended up in the U.S. in the first place. And um, so even though I spent most of my time um, in Japan during my childhood, uh, there were three years um, during elementary school when I had a chance to live in France for for about three years. And uh, my parents put me in American school. Um, I didn't speak a word of English, and you know, at, at that point. But um, you know, during that three years, I learned how to speak English. But and that was the first time I got exposed to um, cultures and people outside of Japan. And two things happened then. Well, one, I had the opportunity to learn English. So that allowed me to you know, open up so much opportunity down the road. Um, but I think the second point, which had a huge impact on why I started this company is I started realizing my, or started thinking about my identity and my roots as a Japanese living in France. And I would have never done that if I stayed in Japan because everyone else is the same as, 
as me. Um, and so it really started making me think where Japan stands in the, in the, in the national community. And, you know, even as a kid, people knew about Toyota, you know, Sony, and back then, you know, animes like Dragon Ball, Pokemon. Mm -hmm. So even as a young kid, I kind of knew intuitively that Japan had a very unique position and, and a very strong brand and presence globally. So, um, you know, even after I came back to Japan um, from France, there was always this idea kind of lingering in the back of my head that um, as a Japanese, I wanted to bring the best of what Japan has and share it with the with the rest of the world because there are so many things um, that's very interesting, right? And I didn't know what it was going to be. And <laughs> certainly I didn't think it was going to be strawberries or produce <laughs> back then. But that was always kind of, you know, in the back of my head as um, as I grew up in Japan. And so, you know, I went to regular middle school, high school, and then college in Japan. I did consulting for about, you know, five, six years. But then I finally had the opportunity to come to the U.S. in 2015 to do my MBA. And um, I think a few things happened then. One, um, so this might sound funny, but... Um, so I arrived to California and California is known to have the best, the highest quality produce in the US, right? But obviously I came from Japan, so I didn't know anything about that. And I went to a local Safeway, I remember, my first grocery shopping in the US. I was really excited. And then I go down the produce aisle, everything is really shiny, everything is big and everything is pretty reasonable, right? So I was really excited. I went back home, I started cooking and I, you know, some of the stuff I ate without cooking and like raw, just to see how it tastes like. And I was just really shocked by the difference in the quality of what I was used to eating in Japan and what I had then. Um, and so I thought maybe, you know, I went to the wrong supermarket. I didn't even know the Safeway was a big chain, right? So I went to another supermarket, everything looked pretty similar and the quality was the exact same. And in particular, I was really disappointed with fruits or um, produce like tomatoes or strawberries because they tasted so much more um, watery and they didn't have as much flavor as I had expected. So, you know, I quickly came to realize that, you know, so something is very different in, in the American agriculture. And I learned that it's because US really optimizes for quantity and for long distance transportation, which means that, um, you know, they don't, they, they, they have to sacrifice quality. Right. So that was one of the first um, things that I experienced in the first week since I arrived. And um, the other thing was that not sure if, if you were in California in 2015, but um, there was a huge drought that year. Okay. And like Japan has never experienced drought. And so I was shocked when, you know, people were saying that I, I wasn't allowed to wash my car because there's not enough water. Right. So even though like global warming and, you know, natural disasters, though, like I've read those in newspapers, I've never experienced it firsthand, but now I'm in the U S a first home country and, you know, people are telling me that I can use water. And so I was feeling this, you know, urgent need for, um, for, for novel ways to change how people make food because agriculture consumes 60% of the water um, on this planet. And um, so there was a increasing demand for new technologies in agriculture. And I used to be a consultant in Japan 
who was professionalized in um, vertical farming consulting. And, and even though it, it didn't really, the industry didn't take off big in Japan, it was taking off in other parts of the world, like the US in 2015, because of all of these sustainable sustainability issues. So, um, you know, those two things combined together, you know, the, 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 the difference in the quality of produce, and then also a need for a new way to um, produce crops, um, which happened to be my passion as well. Um, I thought maybe there is a unique opportunity for me, uh, someone who comes from a country that developed the core of this technology before anywhere else in the world to deploy that here and um, also at the same time be able to share amazing Japanese quality produce to the rest of the world. Yeah, I mean, I, I love that a lot, you know, and I I keep telling people too, like whatever experience that you have when your previous jobs and it always comes full circle and as you become an entrepreneur, you draw on all these experience, even like the most minute experience of dealing with people, dealing with bosses, experience you didn't like, now you incorporate these ideas and experience into your own company. It's crazy how life goes full, full circle sometimes, you know? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I didn't know that I was going to start this company when I first came to the US. <laughs> I'm, glad, I'm really glad you did too, because like the way that you do, you know, your, your vertical farming is like basically the holy grail of, of, of the industry right now. And you're using significantly less water and less land than traditional strawberry farms to, to plant your strawberries. So, you know, hats off to you. And, you know, I do want to talk a little bit more about the, the omakase berries, you know, like tell us sure. what that is and, <laughs> and why is it so prized in New York? Sure, sure. So um, not sure if, if you've heard of the word omakase before, but it's, yes. it's another Japanese word, obviously. And it means it's, it's used in restaurants and um, usually it means um, I leave it to the chef. So if you go to a fancy Mr. and restaurant, they would have an omakase menu, which means that you don't have any freedom to choose what you're going to get served. So you have to leave everything to the chef and the chef will always choose what he, he or she thinks is in the best condition that day and then prepare the full course. And the reason we called our berries omakase is um, a few different reasons, but I think the biggest reason is because our strawberries are always in season and it, we can guarantee that the quality is always the best. And the reason why we can do this is because we grow our strawberries in a completely closed environment that where you know, we don't get impacted by the outdoor weather. So the beauty of it is that you can grow these strawberries anywhere around the world, regardless of you know, the, the, the outside seasonality. And, you know, the, the, the specific varieties that we're growing are um, special Japanese strawberries that are known for its exceptional aroma and sweetness. And this is something that, um, this is a variety that could not have been grown here in the U.S. due to all of the weather, you know, differences than the environmental differences. But because of this technology, we're able to recreate the perfect um, Japanese Alps um, climate. So, you know, even though these strawberries are sitting inside a warehouse in New Jersey, um, you know, they, they think that they're, they're still in Japan basically. Yeah. So I, I do have a question. Um, sorry, Maggie. <laughs> so I do have a question. Um, can you kind of clarify, like, I know there's some of our listeners don't understand like the culture in Japan regarding like planting fruit and planting quality fruit, you know, uh, I did spend on, 
a good amount of time like watching YouTube videos of like farmers having competitions in Japan and yeah. beginning of the year where they want the best fruits and some of these prices on the fruits go like tremendously high. You know, can you quickly touch upon the culture of Japan regarding fruits so our listeners can understand where your company is coming from? Of course, of course. So, you know, this is not just specifically to fruits and produce, but I think in general, over the past you know, 100 years, Japanese people have proven to the world that we're really good at perfecting certain things. When we make cars, our cars, you know, at least, yeah, they, they tended to last longer, right? Or if we make elect- electronics, they, they work and they don't break down. And so I think um, Japanese people have this tendency to try to perfect everything to the detail as opposed to try to do something really efficiently or try to do something at a mass scale. And I think the exact same thing happened in agriculture. So farmers in Japan, their interest is not to produce a lot to make money, but they want to produce something that the customers say is, is the best in class. And they really pride themselves in doing it. So, you know, uh, you know the the negative side of, of it is that you know efficiency is not as high as the U.S. But in terms of quality, I think um, what's produced in Japan is really unbeatable. And also, the consumers who consume these products also have the appreciation to these, you know, quality and attention to detail. And because the consumers understand that um, there is a market for fruits where, you know, people spend, you know, like $50, $100 for a melon or you know, $50 for, for strawberries and people use that for gifting. It's really part of this, you know, gifting and celebration culture. So, you know, strawberries are said to be the king of fruits in Japan. It's everyone's favorite number one fruit. And as a kid, you know, when it, because it's a special crop, um, you know, we, we don't get to eat it every day. And, and so when I go home and I see basically a bowl of strawberries on the table, it, you know, I knew that maybe there was something special or, you know, maybe, maybe we're trying to celebrate something, or maybe my mom figured out that, you know, I had a pretty good grade or something like that. All right. Um, so that's, so, so I think fruit is really in the, in the center of uh, people's culture. It's not just something to consume, but it's something to experience, to like share the moment with, with your friends and families. That's amazing. Personally, my favorite fruit is the strawberry as well. And I'm speaking on behalf of strawberries that you find in the U.S. So just imagine <laughs> the taste of the strawberries that you find in Japan is a different story. Um, so I would love to know the process of building something like an indoor vertical farm and replicating the natural growing conditions that you would need it to be similar to Japan. I've read in a couple of articles that you and your co-founder actually um, slept on the floor of the farms for a long time, trying to get the taste of the strawberries to your liking. Um, talk about the, the process of building a farm like that. Sure. So um, when we first uh, started this company, it was really just myself, my co-founder, Brendan, and another intern from um, Singapore who was uh, on a government program for a year. So we only had three people. We didn't have a lot of money. We had a small seed funding, but that was not you know, enough to hire a bunch of construction people to, to build a farm. So what happened was 
Brandon, myself, and our intern Z, the three of us basically had to build everything from scratch. So the first thing we did was we bought a ship, a used shipping container. We couldn't buy a new one. And because it was all dirty and not like we spent multiple days just scrubbing things off from the surface, making sure everything was clean. But then, you know, we had to buy LED lights. We had to buy HVACs, like special types of HVACs, HVACs because you're going to put a lot of LED lights and it's going to get really hot inside. So we had to buy industrial ones. Um, none of us were engineers. So we had to YouTube a lot of things. We had to go ask experts. And obviously for certain electrical things, you know, we had to hire electricians and whatnot. But um, I would say 99% of our first farms were built by the three of us. And because we didn't have lots of runway, we had to build everything so quickly. And then once we built the farm, you know, we, we brought in uh, seedlings through USDA from Japan. But once the seedlings arrived, right? You need to take care of them. Like you can't just tell them to wait and, you know, wait until everything else is ready. Yeah. So even though a lot of things were kind of still up in the air, we had to make sure that um, the plants are taken care of. So some of the automation systems of, you know, automatically controlling the, um, let's say the, the air conditioning or the lighting spectrums, those were not in place yet, but we had to start growing. So what happened was basically me and Brennan, we had to manually like turn things on, off every, you know, few hours and we had to, you know, water the plants. And, you know, sometimes the pump might get broken because we just bought something off the shelf from Home Depot and they get stuck, you know, every, every few hours. And, in the, and these things happen in the middle of the night too. So every day at like 2 a.m., 3 a.m., our, our alarm system on the phone will start you know, ringing and then we know something's wrong in the farm. So, you know, we'll go back in and then we'll fix whatever that's, that's wrong. So, you know, that was our first, you know, six to 12 months. This is in New Jersey. This yes. Was in a warehouse in, in New Jersey. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's awesome to hear. Yeah, that's amazing. It's, um, you know, for, for myself and Brian, you know, the, the process of just building something like an indoor vertical farm, it just seems so daunting, you know, and, and for you to admit that, you know, you're not engineers, you know, you're, you and your co-founder didn't really know anything about building a farm like that and learning everything from scratch just goes to show, you know, the, the perseverance and the grit that you both have that the three of you have actually. Yeah. I also feel like that's like the beauty of entrepreneurship. It's like we get into mm -hmm. things we don't know the logistics about and how hard it really is. And then we're just so not oblivious to it that we actually do it. You yeah, know, exactly. <laughs> that's why I love entrepreneurship. Yeah. But I think in retrospect, it really helped us as founders to understand the fundamentals of, of the functionality of all of these different components. So as we're building our larger farms, um, we don't, and especially because these are farms that no one has built in the past, right? So you can't just go to a construction company and say, please build a strawberry vertical farm because they don't know what to build. So right. it really helped us kind of, you know, think through how can we you know, bring down the cost? How can we make things more efficiently? Um, and then really work together with these construction companies um, as we're building larger scale facilities. And if it, if we hadn't built it ourselves, we, we would probably have spent so much more time and money on these commercial scale facilities. Um, so I think that was a really good um, lesson for us. That's awesome to hear. And let's kind of talk a bit about your first win. You know, when did you realize that this could be a viable business plan and that you guys can take it further and further? 
Because everyone has their first sales entrepreneur that you're like, whoa, I can actually do this. What was your first moment like? Yeah, so I actually have two moments that were really important um, or turn, the two turning points. So one, the first one was, um, so before we even started building this farm, we needed to make sure that there is demand for these type of strawberries in the US, right? Because I thought our strawberries were really good, but if American people didn't care about it, there's no business. So what we did was Brennan and I, we went to Japan, we filled our suitcases with, with Japanese strawberries, uh, strawberries that's very similar to what we were planning to grow. And we flew to New York, we found a hotel that had the largest fridge in New York, and basically, you know, filled the fridge with our strawberries and then used those strawberries to go from, you know, we started from downtown, we walked all the way up to basically Central Park every day for basically a week, just knocking down doors of restaurant, Michelin star restaurants and, um, and hotels and other produce um, companies. And so we, and um, I think the biggest uh, moment was when um, we got into one of the Michelin restaurants um, and the chef was, he was just like blown away by the quality. And he said, this is the best strawberry I've ever had. Can you bring it from tomorrow? Right. And that was really the moment when we're like, okay, there definitely is a very strong demand. And he was like, I don't care about the price. I'll pay whatever that you ask. So that, I think that was, you know, one of the first moments. Um, it was actually pretty hard to even get there because uh, most Michelin chefs wouldn't meet a random stranger, right? So every time we knock on doors, pe people at the reception will kindly tell us to, you know, basically go away. Right? Um, and so we, we had to lie that we had appointments with chefs to get into the kitchen. And so, you know, it was, it took us a few days to figure out how to do it. Um, but after that, we, we kind of learned, you know, the, the secret sauce to, to, to getting into the kitchen. And once we get into the kitchen, we can just, you know, present our berries right in front of the chefs and they're all, you know, craftsmen and, and you know, professionals. So they wouldn't refuse to eat it. And once they taste it, you know, I would say nine out of 10 chefs were like, you know, bring it from tomorrow. Wow, that is amazing. Now we know the secret sauce is to lie that you have an appointment so you can, you can go into their kitchen. <laughs> if you want to meet a Michelin-starred restaurant uh, chef, you just have to lie that you have an appointment. <laughs> That's amazing. So it seems like, you know, these chefs at high restaurants started, you know, getting interested in your strawberries. How quickly did it actually gain attention from all of the foodies in, in Manhattan? Sure. So, um we strategically started with um, a restaurant called Chef's Table at Brooklyn Fair, which is one of the five Michelin three-star restaurants in Manhattan. And um, the head chef Cesar Ramirez is known to have the the most strict and strict eye for the quality of his produce. So, um, you know, we thought that if we could serve our berries there, the word would spread very quickly, and it actually did. Right. So. Um, once we started serving our berries there, we only had enough to serve at his restaurant. So we weren't selling anything to the public yet at that point. But I would say probably after a few weeks or maybe even a couple of weeks, people started reaching out to us through our you know, inquiry um, link. And a lot of people were, you know, a lot of people who dine at these restaurants, they're millionaires, if not billionaires. <laughs> so they were like, you know, 
I'm willing to pay whatever you ask me. I just want this at you know my next birthday or a gift for my wife. How can I get my hands on these strawberries? So we just didn't have enough supply. So we had to basically turn turn all of that down. But um, that really gave us more confidence, and we just had to keep on ramping up the production amount. That's that's an awesome problem to have, by the way. <laughs> I think it takes a while to grow strawberries and have fruits. Yeah. So it was really um, how to say, like we we knew there was demand, but we knew that we could provide the supply for the next you know eight to ten months. Yeah. So, yeah. Let's talk more about the business side of things too, because running a company is not easy and raising the amount of money that you did is not easy and scaling a team is never easy. So on top of like making sure that you're hustling, putting the strawberries out there, how are you still managing your team and still growing that team structure and maintaining that culture? Yeah, that's a, that's a very good question. Um, to be honest, I don't know the answer to that. I don't know if I'm doing it well. Um, this is my first company. So every day, um, so at this point we're, we're hiring almost one new person every week. So um, basically I'm running an organization that I've never run before every, you know, every week it's, it's bigger and bigger, right? Um, I think up until a certain point, like when we were, let's say 10, 20 people, it was still manageable in terms of, you know, I knowing every single person's background, mm-hmm. where their parents are, where they're from, what their personal interests are. So it was more like, um, you know, like, like a club activity, right? Mm-hmm. So, and, and everyone knew me, everyone knew why I was working on this. So it was very easy to um, educate the, the, the culture as well. But um, you know, as we passed, let's say 50 people or so, you know, there'll be le- much less face time. And especially because we grew um, our company 3X during COVID um, and there were much less inter- human interaction. It was, um, it made it very hard to um, to build that culture, right? Um, and also because I'm not an expert in every single function that we have at Oishi, um, what the way we dealt with it was, um, so I hired a lot of uh, people who, who have way more experience than myself. So basically all of the heads of our departments are people who are much more talented than myself. And my job is really to um, talk about the vision and convince people that we can do things that other people think is impossible. Right. I really, and I really don't get, sorry, about that. I really like the humble mindset a lot. <laughs> yeah. I mean, cause you know, I, I, I need to admit that I, I'm probably not the, the, the best finance person or the best salesperson, but, and I've been in this industry for a long time, probably one of the longest person in this country. Um, to be in this industry. So um, I'm, I'm very confident about my strategy and my vision and what we can do versus what we cannot do. But uh, for the other stuff, I really delegate a lot to um, my, my, my teammates. And um, I think one of the biggest hires that we, we had recently was um, actually a year ago was, um, so we hired the head of a strategy and finance, um, John Reed. He used to be my boss at my consulting company. Right. So he was, he was, he was the first, well, I wouldn't say necessarily a boss. I didn't report to him, but he was a, a, a senior um, at, in my first consulting company. 
And, um, you know, after 15 years, I convinced him that this was going to be a more exciting job than, you know, his COO. So he was a COO at McKinsey Japan. Oh, wow. Uh, you know, being able to bring someone like that, it really helped me um, uh, ease the burden on, on, on the organization uh, management side of things. I love that. I love that a lot, too. Yeah, I, I mean, I just kind of want to echo off what Brian said, love that mindset, because, you know, you growing this company from the ground up, you know, you knowing, you know, every part of the company, every area, you're, you're well, you know, you have a well expertise in it. It's really hard to give that up, you know, um, it's really hard to give up control, but, you know, willing to take on people who are, you know, smarter than you in different areas is, is a very humbling experience. And, um, just goes to show, you know, how much you care about the company and about the growth of the company. Um, yeah. Yeah. At the end of the day, if this company doesn't succeed, then there's no point in doing this. So I just need to bring in whoever that's most suitable. If someone is better than me and coming up with a vision, then maybe, maybe it's better for that person to take over my position. But, you know, at this point, you know, and on, on, on the, the vision side of things, you know, I think I, I I can still lead the company to um, to a pretty pretty good place. So let's kind of let's kind of talk about the vision that you have for your company real quick. Do you envision the strawberries being available to everyone in the United States at sure. a much lower price now that you're able to scale? Like, sure. How are you envisioning supply and demand? Yeah. So the whole reason I started this company was not necessarily to bring Japanese strawberry to the U.S., but um, really bring a paradigm shift to this whole agriculture industry using vertical farming technology. So if you think of how, you know, Tesla changed the automotive industry by saying, you know, running on gasoline is not cool anymore. It's not sustainable. Let's, let's use electricity instead. And the exact same thing is happening to agriculture because of you know the lack of water land and then especially in this country a lot of illegal um immigrants were supporting the the labor side of things but you know those people are unfortunately you know driven away um by the by, by trump basically and so um the cost for that that's going into traditional agriculture is skyrocketing and so there has to be a new way to cope with this situation and vertical farming is the solution and and that's why we're seeing a lot of startups here. But you know, as an expert in this industry, what I realized was that all of these startups can only grow leafy greens. Um, and because of that, the profitability is, is not very high. And as a consultant, I saw so many companies um, go under because of that. And I thought that in order to succeed in this industry, we need to, we need to have a product that can generate strong revenue and something that can be branded. And so our goal is to really become the world's largest food producer. And we started with strawberries because we thought it's, it is the, the, the right strategic decision uh, from the, the, the cash flow perspective, but also from building a strong brand because it's really hard to build a brand around leafy greens. That's really interesting. And speaking of branding, you know, I, I think that this is just something that I'm personally curious about. We we know that way she sells in supermarkets as well. Um, but how did you decide, you know, which supermarkets were right to sell them at? And how do you make sure that they stand out from the other store-bought strawberries besides the price? You know, the price is obviously different, but, you know, for someone who is, who doesn't know anything about Japanese 
space, right? How do you make sure, you know, the brand stands out and that they understand the quality of the strawberry even before they even get to try it, you know? Yes. So um, I think going back to the, the prior question as well, but our goal is to, you know, have our strawberries in every supermarket, not only in the U.S., but around the world, right? And um, to your question, we so right now we're selling at a supermarket called Eli Zabar's um, on the Upper East Side. Um, the reason why we decided to go with Eli's is because um, we're working directly with this with the son of the founder who really cares about the quality of the produce that's that that they're selling and you know if we purely went with who's going to pay the highest you know price tag for our product it may not have been Eli's. there are you know other people who are also interested in product but we just wanted to make sure that whoever that's selling our berries really understand the value of our berries and that they're really personally bought in because otherwise if, if if they're not um, like that, the people who's going to handle our strawberries may might just like handle it just like any other strawberries, or they might not do proper marketing or branding that we would want to see. So um, we always prioritize people who really love our product, who can also stand you know behind our brand um, quality to make sure that the customer's um, experience is always um, consistent. Amazing. That's really interesting. How have you? grown over the past years, you know, this, this company has, you know, been so successful and, you know, your series A of $50 million um, was just completed. I, I'd love to know, like, how you've grown personally over the, the past years that you've grown at Oishi. I would say when we first started this company, it was really just a few, few dudes who, who had passion in vertical farming and we were just grinding every day and everyone was into this 100%. And so we didn't really think about, um, you know, how the, the impact to um, our employees because everyone was really um, in it. But now, you know, as we pass the size of, let's say 50 people, there are so many different types of people who is working at our company. And I, when we first started, it was just a bunch of, you know, 20 year olds, all single, no one had families. We had we didn't have a lot of responsibility like we didn't have to be um very responsible even if it failed but now we have so many um people who have families you know people with lots of experience and you know people are tr who are trying to make a career out of you know what they do at oishi so as the company grew um there you know i i started to feel more responsible that this is actually becoming real it's it's becoming a real company and so it's it's a little bit of a pressure, but at the same time, um, I really think about um, the work environment, how people are, um, you know, spending their time at Oishi um, as 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 their job, and so it's become how do you say? I think more about the employees these days. Whereas, you know, the first two years, it's, it was really about just, you know, hitting milestones, hitting milestones, hitting milestones. But now a lot of my time has shifted to um, people management and making sure that everyone is happy, um, especially now that, you know, I'm not as close to everyone as I used to be. Um, so I think that's the biggest change. Yeah. That's amazing. I, it's, I feel like it's very similar to myself and Brian just growing Asian Hustle Network when it was just the two of us and we were, you know, pretty unresponsible. Now that we're scaling, we have to become more responsible because we have team members to take care of. 
Yeah. It's, Absolutely. it's amazing though, right? That like you yeah. know, something mm-hmm. that you built and it, you know, you're you're paying the salary for people and you know, people are enjoying working uh, you know, at the place that you've built. So that's actually really rewarding to me. Right, absolutely. It's very important. It's scary at the same time, you know, because <laughs> like you mentioned earlier, people's livelihoods are now in your hands and you always take that into consideration as you're making business decisions. Like, is this going to benefit the company? Is it going to continue growing? And you, you try not to think about the negative impact of your decisions sometimes. You're like, oh no, no I can't make my decisions. <laughs> but yeah, shout yeah. out to you, man. It's not an easy task. So keep going. Definitely. So Hiroki, we have one last question for you. And that is if you could give an advice to an aspiring entrepreneur, what would that advice be? Ah, that's a very difficult question, but a good question. Um, So I think one thing I struggled a lot as an entrepreneur, um, especially, you know, coming from Japan, was that a lot of people, especially my MBA, um, uh, try to provide opinions to me as I was starting my company. And I'm sure anyone who wants to start a business would talk about their business idea to their friends or to their professors or their families. And I almost guarantee that 99% of the time, people are going to tell you that there's a flaw in your business model or your idea. And I guess the biggest advice, like if I could give myself back five years ago, would be listen to people, but don't be overly influenced by what they say, especially if they're not from the field that, you know, you're going to start your business in, or especially if they haven't founded a company themselves, because it's so easy to point out flaws in business, as opposed to guarantee that you're going to succeed, right? So, uh, and everyone, when they're asked, they feel like they have to provide feedback, but it's entrepreneurship is really not about ideas. It's about like being in the right place at the right time, but also being the last person to give up, right? Like in in the 21st century, no one really makes a unicorn because you came up with an idea that no one else has thought of before. It's all about how passionate, how much more passion you have than your, your competitors and executed well. But that part does not get involved in your conversation with your friends or with your parents and they only look at your business idea. So, um, you know, if you're really passionate about something, um, you, know, you should probably listen to people's advices, but um, I would say don't be overly influenced by the negative uh, comments. That's really good advice. Yeah, I mean, I think any other founder would definitely agree that, you know, it's very easy to get pulled in hundreds of different directions from advisors and friends and family. Um, but as long as you are passionate, because you're the person who's in that business yourself. So, you know, you know, the full scope of what is happening. And exactly. Possible. So thank you so much for that advice. My, one of my professors at Berkeley, a very well-known professor in the, the field of entrepreneurship, told, you know, straight up to my face, you're not going to raise money because this is a CapEx intensive business and no one's interested in agriculture. You should, you should reconsider this. Oh, wow. You're, you're going to waste your visa. Right. And as, as a first time entrepreneur, I'd be really scared to hear something like that. Right. Coming from someone with authority. So. Yeah. I'm glad you didn't listen to him. Yeah. <laughs> it's the same thing with us too. People were just like, you're raising money for a Facebook group. Well, I want to turn this Facebook group into a company. <laughs> yeah. 
So Hiroki, how can our listeners find out more about you and Oishi? Or where can they find it? Oh, the, the product? Yes. Um, yeah, so right now we are only selling in the Manhattan and Brooklyn and uh, parts of Jersey City. Um, but if, if you live in those areas, you can uh, visit our website. Um, our production is ramping up. So I think in the next couple months, you will see much more availability. Um, so you can order online and it'll get delivered to your home. Um, there are also other few partnership locations um, throughout Manhattan where you can reserve our berries and then go pick it up yourself. And then finally, you can go um, visit uh, Eli's Zabar's um, supermarket. And um, hopefully if you go early enough um, during the day, you'll, you'll find um, our berries there. If it's not sold out. Amazing. Well, I will be waiting until the website is not sold out as well because I tried ordering online and there weren't any available, but I will keep my eyes peeled for that. Thank you so much, Hiroki. It was amazing hearing your story today. We appreciate you for sharing with us. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for being on the podcast today. I appreciate you. And congratulations on your successes. Thank you, Brian. Hey guys, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe to the show. We would like to get to the top 10 on iTunes, so be sure to leave us a five-star review. We release an episode every single Wednesday, so stay tuned. Thank you guys so much.